Amen. All of God's people said? Amen. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning, if you will, and turn to the very first book in our Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. A few months ago when the staff and I had gathered together and we had talked about this year and really when I began to go before the Lord and seek him on the messages that he would have me to bring this year and some of you know that like I schedule Lord willing under his under the Spirit's direction I schedule my messages way in advance so for example in October I had all of the 2018 on the books I think right something like that Jeremy so that they could plan and they could get their music together and really when I was working through this year I, I mean this this one theme kept coming to mind and that is the idea that we make it count that we make the time that God has given us here count for him and his kingdom I don't know why God impressed such urgency upon me and really why he gave me that type of theme but I have been living with it each and every day thinking about how we make it count for the kingdom and I wanted to go back in the scripture as we looked on Sunday morning at God's Word I wanted to go back and look at the different instances and so many different lives I mean how do you how do you really narrow it down how do you narrow down all the characters of the scripture and really get into just let's say three or four okay now, I know some of you would probably say, well, you don't have to preach so long about each one, you know. We've only covered, what, two now since January, I think, two lives. But how do you really narrow it all down? Because God uses so many different folks. I mean, all throughout the scripture, God's using real people all of the time to accomplish his kingdom's purposes. And it's incredible to see how God's story unfolds because we know that each person while, is, while that individual is used by God, that individual is not the hero of the story. There's a greater story. And the hero of this greater story of the mission itself is God. And what God does is he just takes flesh and blood like us. Now, I also love to study such lives, and especially the life that we're going to begin today, the life of Joseph. I love to look at that life because I'm re I recognize that Joseph... Is human like us he comes from a family a human family an imperfect family I am so grateful that as we go through these lives as we think about it that God will take imperfect lives and imperfect families and still use them to accomplish his will I'm ex I'm excited about that you know why this is going to be like something revelatory for you but I'm an imperfect person This is going to be even more revelatory to you. You are an imperfect person. We come from imperfect backgrounds. But yet, if God can use all of these imperfect people in the Scripture, that means that God can use us. And it should excite us to know that we can make it count for the kingdom. Joseph. Genesis chapter 37. It really begins to tell us the story. Yes, Joseph's already been born, and we know that. We've seen that in the Scripture. But chapter 37 begins to really delve into his story. Now, his story is connected with the story of the patriarchs. Really, his story is connected to the family story itself. Notice chapter 37, verse 1. 
Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. In other words, as we get into the story of Joseph, we have to understand the story of Jacob and the patriarchs themselves because they're all interconnected. That's what the writer of Genesis tells us. It says basically when we're launching out into Joseph's narrative, we're also linking it back to his dad. Because get this, we all come from somewhere. We all come from somewhere. We all have backgrounds. We all have families. We all have family of origins. We all have different experiences. And all of those things shape us and form us. In other words, we are connected to our past in some way. So it's important to understand that. It's important. Now, many of you, well, probably two or three of you, know that I'm from the great state of Mississippi, right? And you've heard me talk about that, and I've talked a little bit about my background and the experiences that I have. I was thinking about the wind-shaped students that I met a moment ago. I mean, all of you, you come from different colleges and universities and different places, and you all come with your own background. Now, let me say this to you. I, I don't know if you noticed this during the music a moment ago, but it was right, I guess, during the fellowship time, just as we were getting started. Did you see a dove from heaven come down? You didn't? I'm getting worried now. You did not see the glory of Christ demonstrated? You did not. As I was walking through and I was looking at the name tags, all of a sudden the glory of God shone through one of those name tags. Josh? Yeah, stand up, man. <laughs> Look around. Look around, everybody, all right? What school do you go to, bud? Blue Mountain College. Blue Mountain College. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> I tell you, the glory of the Lord. <laughs> Blue Mountain. I'm proud he wasn't from MC or something like that, you know. Or... Hey, we all come from somewhere. We all have places that mean a lot to us. We have people that have influenced us in our lives. We've had folks that have shaped us in some way for the good and sometimes, yeah, for the negative. So we need to know where we came from. And as we get into the life of Joseph, and really as you see this scene in chapter 37, you somehow connect it back to know that it's all in the context of the family. And that's the reason I want to bring you this message. The house that Jack built, the house that Jacob built, the house that old Jack himself, old Jacob built, and how you see it play into the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph had been born into a great pedigree. He had been born into the pedigree of promise, of privilege, and blessing. I mean, he was one of God's chosen people, right? God had chosen this family to work through, and Joseph had been born into it. You would think being born into such privilege and promise and blessing that everything would be great. But you would be wrong. Because in the midst of that promise, that blessing, that privilege, you find again the imperfect individuals and you find the imperfect family. You find a family that was built 
upon deception, a family that was steeped in strife, and a family that was devoid of leadership. At least the father himself, Jacob, was no leader in his family. I want you to see this as we work through it because the history of Jacob, the house of Jacob, demonstrates to us a house that is filled with strife, passivity, and violence. Look at these scriptures, if you will, today. Verse 2, it says again, Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So in the very beginning here, the writer of Genesis sets for us this context, this family of strife. I mean, it is a natural strife. Notice what it says. The lad was with the sons of Billa and the sons of Zilpah. In other words, it's like he is there with his half-brothers. And you know that there's going to be a natural rivalry. I, I don't know about your family or so, but a lot of times you'll see sibling rivalries develop. You'll, you'll kind of see it as they compete with one another. I, I just, uh, I've just been teaching my kids how to play Rook. Leslie and I have been. I know it's sad. <laughs> they ought to have better practices and exercises during the summer. But we've been teaching them. We've been making them play. And, but it's always amazing when we play games how competitive they get. I mean, how they want to win. Of course, I think they get that from their mom mostly. <laughs> but they're very, very competitive. I told Rhett yesterday, I said, you don't play a game just to play a game. All this stuff about you, it's the way you play and just have fun. No, you're not. You're playing a game to win, right? Is that not? Come on. You play a game to win. Well, you have all these rivalries. And here in the scripture, it says there's a natural strife. You've got Joseph with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah. So there's a natural strife that is there. But the whole household had been filled with strife. Joseph 17. All he has seen in his life is strife. Oh yeah, read the story. Go back. I challenge some of you to go back and read the story of Jacob up to this point. And what do you see? Strife. Over and over. Just a little bit of a history lesson, not too much, because we've got to finish this morning at some point, you know. But you remember Jacob, he fell in love. Love at first sight. It is a romantic story. It is a lovely story about how he saw this woman named Rachel. And he wanted to marry her. And he found out that she was his first cousin culturally in the day. That meant that she was target number one, right? Culturally in the day. So I'm going to marry Rachel. So he goes to his uncle Laban and he says, hey, I want to marry your daughter. And uncle Laban says, all you got to do is work seven years for me. Seven years, you can have my daughter as your wife. So he worked seven years. And he got, oh, you love the scripture there. You ought to go back and look at it. It's, I went back and read it again this week because it says that 
Those years just seemed but a few days to Joseph because he loved Rachel so much. Can everybody just say, ah, isn't that sweet? That's just awesome. Those seven years, he goes and he gets married, finds out, finds out very quickly he's married the wrong woman. His uncle had deceived him. And Leah, the older daughter, was given to him in marriage. The scripture says then that he works seven more years so that he can marry Rachel. And then there's the competition between the, those two ladies. And before you know it, the handmaidens are given to, giving to Jacob as well. So that Jacob has basically four wives. Can you imagine? Wheels are turning, aren't they? Sometimes uh, I've heard people argue, said, see, the scripture does not necessarily endorse uh, one man, one wife. I mean, look at all of, the, all of those in the Old Testament. I've heard that culturally speaking. I've heard people like try to defend their view of marriage and try to push back against the idea of traditional marriage by looking at these scriptures and saying, see, even the patriarchs, uh, they practice polygamy. Yeah, and that didn't turn out too well for any of them. Have you noticed that? God permits a lot of stuff in our lives, but he doesn't ordain or sanction several things in our lives. As a matter of fact, there was strife constantly. Constant strife between the wives, between the children. And here you just see it just continuing. It's a house of strife. That's all Joseph had seen for 17 years is strife. There was natural strife. And then guess what? There was strife that was nurtured by old dad. This is what the account tells us. It says, certainly Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. We're going to get back to that. But verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. In other words, it says that he just, he loved Joseph. Maybe it's because Joseph was the child of his favorite wife. But also, maybe it was because he was older and he never thought Rachel was going to have such a child and he embraced him. There was something about that. I don't know. Old age makes you do some strange things, right? <laughs> Grandparents, you never would have treated your children that way. I always say my parents are different people these days. I don't even recognize them half the time when the grandkids are around. Old age, maybe. He was approximately 91 when Joseph was born. That'll put a different perspective and spin on it, won't it? I tell Leslie sometimes at the age of 40, I, I don't know, I'm about ready to give up. I'm too tired to fight the battle anymore, you know, with the kids. Can you imagine 90? He, old age, he nurtured this envy and strife. The scripture says. And of course, the scripture also t says to us that he was, that he made him a tunic of many colors. This variegated type, ornamental type of garment that he gave to him. So that everyone would basically know, hey, he, he's my favorite. So every time you saw Joseph in this variegated type of garment, you would naturally think, 
He is the honored child. He's the favorite. The scripture says that it's this colored garment, but the language of the scripture will also kind of give you the idea that it, it was like long-sleeved all the way down to the wrist, even to the ankles. Let me ask you this. How do you work in those type of garments? How, how do you like do anything in that type of robe? This week, you come to volunteer at Windshape, you best not wear one of those types of robes, all right? You're, you don't want something all the way down to your ankles. You don't want something all the way down to your wrist because you can't do anything, especially when it's so warm and all of that. I'm convinced Joseph didn't have to do much of anything. Didn't have to work. He was just kind of the honored one. Favoritism was shown. Strife was created, even by old dad. But old dad had learned this. It was a learned behavior. Go back and trace his family heritage. I mean, if you were to go back even to Abraham, you could say that there was favoritism of Isaac. I know Isaac was the promised child. I know that, but you could see a little bit of that there. But certainly within Isaac, Isaac had chosen Esau. His wife had chosen Jacob. And there was this natural rivalry that was there, but also a rivalry that was, that was nurtured by the parents. He had seen it. It was a learned behavior, and strife was there in the family. And the cycle continued in the life of Jacob as he favored Joseph. Have you ever noticed that about families? They get caught in these endless type of cycles, just endless type of cycles. Same type of behavior, same, same type of Mannerism, same type. I mean, you just see it just over and over and over. Oftentimes in our culture, we will lament the economic cycle that people find themselves in and how terrible it is and how we need to break that cycle. But I submit to you this morning that there are those in our lives, there are spiritual cycles that are devastating. There are social cycles that are devastating. And somehow we just seem to keep repeating those things. And that's what you see in Jacob's life. Well, Joseph, of course, encourages. I'm not saying he does really bad things, but he doesn't help the situation either, especially when he starts talking about his dreams. I'm not going to read all of this just for time's sake this morning. But you remember Joseph, he has these different dreams. Dreams play a big part in the Joseph narrative. So he has these different dreams. You know, when you dream something, you know you can keep it to yourself, right? Actually, when you, th let me say this. This is, a, this is a bigger context, and this may need to be said to everybody. When you think something, you can also keep that to yourself, right? <laughs> Come on, people. Somebody say amen. amen. You think something, maybe it's not good. Just kind of keep that one to yourself. Kind of ponder it in your heart like old Mary did at times, you know. Just, just, just keep some things to yourself. Joseph goes up and he says, hey, guys, I just had a dream. We were all out in the field and, you know, we were getting ready for the harvest. We were bringing in the sheaves. And all of a sudden, my sheaf, my, my, my head of grain seemed to, like, 
rise above all of the rest of y'all's. I mean, it was like, it was, it was like, man, I was in control. I was doing, I mean, it was like I had all authority. Yeah. You can envision those brothers, can you not? And the envy and the hatred. He says, oh, I, I got another dream. I got a dream about how the sun and the moon and 11 stars, yeah, there are 11 of you, 11, 11 stars, how they all bow down to me. And you can sense the strife, the bitterness, and the rivalry continuing to grow. The scripture says that this type of hate was added to them. They hated him even more. In other words, it just produced more and more hatred and envy. And the strife was there. Well, Jack's house was a house of strife. But partly I think it's a house of strife because it was a house of passivity. That is, there's not any leadership. There's... There, Everybody's just doing his or her own thing. There's no leader. Let me ask this. Who do you think should be leading the family? Jacob. He is the patriarch in so, uh, in so many ways. He should be providing leadership for the family. I don't see any leadership in this passage, nor in the passages prior to this one. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, look in verse 12. It says, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Oh, Shechem. That may not mean anything to you all, but it meant something to Jacob, and it meant something to Jacob's family. Because if you go back a few chapters, you will find that it is in Shechem that Jacob's daughter Dinah is violated by the Hivites. It's a terrible, tragic story. They come to tell Jacob that his daughter has been violated. And what does Jacob do? Nothing. Nothing. Instead, two sons, the scripture says Simeon and Levi, have to step up and defend their sister. Because dad... He is missing in action. There is no type of leadership. It's just kind of like he hears about it and that's, what can I do? So here they are going to Shechem. A painful reminder that Jacob has not led in the past. Look in verse 13. Israel, that is Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said, here I am. And then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. Perhaps he was concerned. Maybe Jacob was at least concerned about his sons because again, they're back in Shechem. This is where all these bad events took place. This is where they battled the local people. So maybe, maybe he's like, well, we ought to just at least send somebody and see, see if they're okay. Joseph, what you going up there? Check on them. 
And the scripture says that Joseph went and he went to Shechem looking for them. Verse 15, now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? And so he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they've departed from here for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. You don't think that Jacob had some sense of the hostility that these brothers had toward Joseph? I mean, was he that oblivious? I, I'm just asking. Was he that oblivious? Had he so checked out of family life that he didn't know the things that were going on with his kids? Had he just decided he would take off for a little while of, from fatherhood? After all, he was 90 plus at this point. He was over 100. So maybe just take off for a while. Where is Jacob? Where is this great patriarch? Where is it when he is discerning what is going on in his family and where he is trying to work toward reconciliation and restoration? Where is this man? But I could also ask this morning, where are the men today who've checked out of their families, who are not sensitive to what's going on in the life of their children? the life of their wife. Where are those guys? Where are those guys that should be stepping up and trying to take the leadership of their family as God has given them this ordained role? Where are they? And I believe that question screams out to us in the culture in which we live. They said, let us kill him. Verse 19, they said to one another, look, the dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it. Ah, oh, there's another place. Shechem reminds us of the passive Jacob, but now hearing the name Reuben also reminds us. Because Reuben was the firstborn. And again, if you go back to chapter 35 or so, you will see that Reuben, that Reuben, the firstborn, actually commits that which is unspeakable with one of Jacob's handmaidens. And what does the scripture say in chapter 35? It says that this terrible act occurs, this inappropriate relationship, and that... Jacob or Israel heard about it. That's all it says. He heard about it. Scripture doesn't say that he goes to his son and says, Son, you know that's wrong. It doesn't say that he goes to his son and said, Son, I am outraged at what you have done. It doesn't say anything about it. It just says he heard about it. I'm telling you, if you look through the Scripture, you will see a passive father that does not take leadership of his family. Passivity can so take hold of all of us as well. 
I, I had a study some years ago. Some of you may have gone through it too. It's, it's kind of an older study now. It's called Men's Fraternity. Some people may still find the books or work through the worksheets. It's written by a guy named Robert Lewis. We've talked about him before. You've heard my affection for him. Robert Lewis, who not long ago was inducted into the Ruston High School Hall of Fame, I believe. Uh, just a great study for me. It, it talked about authentic manhood. And one of the things that it said, it really was the first step toward authentic manhood, was rejecting passivity in our lives as men. Because we have been so... We have been so shaped by culture. We have been so shaped by what the world says to us that we guys in particular who should be leading, we've kind of stepped back and just said, just let things roll the way they are. We're just naturally passive. He makes the case that Adam himself was. Remember? Adam and Eve. Where's Adam when Eve takes the bite of the forbidden fruit? Where is he? Where's the leadership? And don't forget, God actually charged the responsibility to him. It's through one man that sin entered into the world. Adam. He had the responsibility. But it was like he was standing off in the shadows and like he was standing there to say, let's see what happens here. Let's see if she eats this, if she really will die. And I'm going to tell you again, there are a lot of guys who are standing over in the shadows just watching to see what will happen. Instead of emerging from those shadows and taking the leadership positions that they should in their family. Strife, passivity, violence. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So he had noble, noble intentions. Maybe he wanted to make up to his dad what he had done back in chapter 35. They took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, for there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Violence was in their heart. Violence was in their head, and they acted in a violent way, throwing their brother into a pit. And notice that, again, the beginning of verse 25. We'll look at the rest of it as we get back together next week. But look at verse 25, that very first part. And they sat down to eat a meal. How calloused can you be? How unfeeling. When your brother is in a pit, obviously... In some way hurt he'd been cast down his beloved variegated garment had been destroyed how calloused but this is the house that Jack built hey let me give you this real quickly before we leave because some of us in this place no, let me say this. All of us in this place have experienced different types of disappointment. 
We've been disheartened. We come in here maybe with some baggage from our past. And you know what? Even those of us that had parents that we loved and that tried to teach us the right thing and lead us in the right area, even they failed. And those of us who are parents now who even strive to do what is right, we mess up and we fail. But the power of God has a way of redeeming our experiences and giving us the strength and the ability to do what he has called us to do. We've got to believe that. And we've got to trust that because this is what's so cool about this. Despite where we come from, God's power is so, it is so magnificent that he can still use you no matter what your background is. No matter what has happened in your life, God can still use you. Hear this. Joseph had come from a house of strife, of passivity, of violence, and yet guess what God's going to do? God's going to use Joseph to deliver his people. Because our God can take even those difficult backgrounds, even those homes that have been broken, he can take those things and he can redeem those things and he can somehow still use us for his glory. We need to understand that. That our God is about providentially working, about seeing what's out there and preparing us for those moments. He can redeem our past. Because I say this again, Joseph is not the hero. God is the hero. God is the one that can use Joseph. God is the one that will somehow show his strength in Joseph's life. But let me give you this. Despite where you come from, listen to me. Despite where you come from, God gives you the power to break a devastating cycle. We look through this and we read through it and sometimes we, we begin to think, well, you know what? That's just the cycle of our family. That's the cycle we're in. It, it, there's no way out. Wrong. In the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's always always a way to break the devastating cycle that's found in your family. Now, it can only come through Jesus. It can only come through the Holy Spirit. If we're going to talk about God somehow breaking the social, spiritual cycle of our lives, we've got to know it begins with Him. Some months ago, some months ago, a guy sat before me and he talked to me about the things that were going on in his life and how he, had, how he had violated the trust of his marriage. And he said to me, you know, people always said I'd be like my dad. Everybody said I was just like my dad. And everybody said I was just going to do the same thing that my dad did. So I just did it. I'm just like my dad. Never forget him saying that to me. His words broke my heart. Those words broke my spirit. Because I know this. You and I are not destined to be just like 
our family of origin. And we're not destined to do the things that they have done. We're not destined just to do what is in our past. We are destined to live like the Lord Jesus Christ as believers. We have been given his spirit in our lives and we can overcome devastating cycles. Yes, we can through the Holy Spirit of God in us. Don't ever, don't ever let people tell you that. Don't ever excuse sin in your life because you think that's just your family. You can break the devastating cycle. You may be shaped by your past. Yes, you are, but you are not trapped by your past. You may be informed by your past, but you are not defeated by your past. Not if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus. What I would say to you is those of you who come in here carrying the baggage this morning is for you to throw that baggage down and for you to pick up a book of instruction to help you follow him the way he wants you to go. You need to put that baggage down. I love, an old, I love the altar itself of where there's a symbolic giving to God. Of saying, God, hey, I'm giving this to you. And I'm leaving it here. I'm not, I'm not coming back after Sunday school to pick it up and take it with me. I'm putting it down. I say to you, you ought to put down your suitcase of disappointments and put on the Savior of deliverance. Because despite where you come from, God gives you the power to step up and lead like you should. Those of us in our families who are leaders, and all families, they look different today. I know that. I know that. But if God has appointed you a leader right now in your family, he's given you the power to step up and lead. Renounce passivity. Be intentional in who you are and what you do. Dads, fathers, embrace the leadership that God has given you. Stop depending on the world to inform and influence your children. Stop depending upon social media to entertain them. You decide that you will be a part of their lives. And you step up and lead as you should. We put so much effort. We put so much effort into the academics of our children. Maybe the athletic skills of our children. Think of it. If our kids are struggling academically, we make sure that they can get a tutor or something like that. We try to help them. Maybe we try to give them a little boost by going to a different class or course because it's so meaningful to us. What do we do in athletics? We get our kids extra baseball lessons. We have them going from place to place. We do that. Why? Because we want them to achieve and do well. Why don't we take that same motivation and same leadership into their spiritual lives? Amen. Why don't we decide that, you know what? We're going to do whatever it takes in our homes and in our lives. We're going to make sure that, hey, you know what? We got some free tutoring courses around here. It's called Sunday school, right? You, yeah, I'm going to get them to Sunday school. I'm going to get them to win shape. I'm going to get them to extra times. Now, I'm not going to cede my responsibility to the church because the church is not there to raise your children. You are there to raise your children. All we want to do is kind of come alongside and supplement that. But you're going to take leadership. So that the house that Jack built is not the reality at your house.
or otherwise, strife, passivity, maybe violence in some way, but at least brokenness. We want to renounce those things. And through the power of God, through His Spirit, we want to see our families thrive for the kingdom of God. It can only come through Christ. Hey, as we close, dads, fathers, have you committed your life to the Lord Jesus? Because I'm going to tell you, you can try to change everything you want to, but until you give your life and surrender to him totally, you're not going to change anything. Have you truly given your life to Christ? If not, you need to do that today. Those of you who have, just like me, sometimes we have to recommit ourselves, rededicate ourselves. Now challenge the fathers, challenge the husbands, but also challenge every one of us that have influences in our families. Would we seek him in all that we do? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. We are in such a desperate need. Such a desperate need. Our families are hurting, not just in our community, but across our globe, across the nations. And God, in so many ways, we're just repeating the cycle. But I pray that through your power, through the Holy Spirit, that you would intervene in these families, intervene in our lives so that we could break the cycle and we could seek you. Too many homes this morning, even represented here, are going through strife. God, bring peace. As only you can. And use us in the process of leading as we should. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.